0: Welcome to a special episode of Health Centers on the Front Lines. Today's episode is a recording of a recent discussion NAC held about how health centers are addressing social determinants of health. The pandemic has exacerbated health disparities. In this discussion, we were joined by Dr. Cameron Webb, Senior Policy Advisor for Equity with the White House COVID-19 Response Team, and health center leaders from Connecticut, Minnesota, and Texas. As Dr. Webb said in his remarks, we've seen disproportionality in who has had access to COVID testing, rates of hospitalization, rates of long COVID. This is a rare moment to look in real time at what we can do to reduce these disparities that stem from systemic inequities.
1: Welcome everyone to our 50th anniversary webinar series. I'm Eureka de la Cruz, the Social Determinants of Health Manager here at NAC. We are grateful to all of you for joining us today and to our nationally renowned speakers for lending their voice to our discussion focused on the impact of the social determinants of health in our communities, as well as the strategies and partnerships health centers are developing and cultivating to address the social determinants of health head on. To kick us off, it is my pleasure to introduce NACS Associate Vice President of Development and Innovation, Jason Patnash, who will provide welcoming remarks. Jason?
2: Thank you, Rico, and good afternoon, everyone. I echo your warm welcome to those joining us today. Social determinants of health are vital drivers of the work we do here at NAP, and we recognize the impact that system, systemic inequities have on communities' health, including the access to the most basic of human needs. From our policy and advocacy work to our research, evaluation, technical assistance, and COVID-19 response efforts, NAC's core mission is to support all community health centers and to promote the efficient, high quality, comprehensive health care that is accessible, culturally and linguistically competent, community directed, and patient centered for all. We saw this commitment to health centers once again today with an additional $1 billion in support for community health centers from the administration. We know the goals cannot be accomplished alone. The recent pandemic has proven that. Today, As we continue to celebrate NAC's 50th anniversary, you will hear from innovative government and health center leadership, working to improve many of the social risks our country is facing. And they will share examples of the approaches they are using to do so. NAC is grateful for the hard work of community health centers and the social service agencies like those represented today. The health of our communities begins not only in the home, but in the businesses, organizations, policies, schools, faith-based institutions, and spaces around them. It takes individuals like you to dismantle the core structural barriers in place when creating an equitable healthcare landscape. And we appreciate your continued efforts to lift the voices of our most vulnerable communities. Thank you again for joining us today and for all that you do to support your communities. Eureka, back to you.
1: Great, thank you so much, Jason. I now have the pleasure of introducing my NAT colleague, Nalani Tarrant, Deputy Director of Research Projects. She will highlight our national efforts to collect the data needed to better understand the social determinants of health across
0: communities and using the data to address social needs. Nalani, over to you now. Thanks, Eureka. And as mentioned, um, hi, everyone. My name is Nalani Tarrant. I am the Deputy Director of Research Projects at NAC. Next slide. And today I wanna to start off by explaining why social determinants of health are important. Social determinants of health are conditions that impact our health and well-being. They are the circumstances which we are born, grow, live, work and age. And while we know that health is impacted by so many things, as a driver of health inequities, social determinants of health have shown a greater impact on population health and individual well-being than factors such as biology and medical care. What I want to emphasize here is how the literature continues to show that 20% of health outcomes can be attributed to clinical care. While the remaining 70, 80% have been attributed to social, economic, and environmental factors referred to as social determinants of health. And as members of the public health sphere, it's our job to think outside the box and reshape the model to think about access to care and personal behavior within the context of an individual's community and socioeconomic position. Next slide health centers and others are increasing their use of social risk screening tools, such as prepare to better understand, document, and address the root causes of not just poor health, but of inequities. As health centers are increasingly committed to standardized social risk uh, screening, data can maximize the impact towards building system capacity for health equity and accelerate alignment strategies. This slide illustrates that data can be used to guide local partnerships and accelerate alignment, focusing on better care delivery and planning from the patient all the way to system and policy levels. Next slide. I mentioned PREPARE in the previous slide and it stands for the Protocol for Responding to and Assessing Patients' Assets, Risks and Experiences. It is a national standardized patient risk assessment tool designed to engage patients in assessing and addressing social determinants of health. There are 16 core measures part of PREPARE and the core measures you see outlined in the red box are also part of UDS. By collecting the core data set, allows a health center or organization to better understand how to best serve their patient population. PREPARE also has several other optional measures that look at incarceration history, domestic violence, safety, and refugee status. Next slide. So PREPARE is the most widely used social risk screening tool among community health centers. Here's a snapshot of the national PREPARE use from 2019. Next slide. And we continue to see the interest in PREPARE grow, mainly because PREPARE is actionable, it's standardized and widely used, it's evidence-based and quarter driven it's designed to accelerate systemic change, and lastly, but most important, PREPARE is patient-centered. It's meant to facilitate conversations and build relationships with patients. Next slide. The COVID pandemic has illustrated how public health crises dramatically magnifies existing health disparities due to the influence of social determinants of health including but not limited to the risk of getting COVID-19, mortality and morbidity, access to care, impact of the economic downturn, discrimination and bias, and vaccination access and hesitancy. Next slide. So the prepare team at NAC and AFSHO disseminated two surveys, one in the summer of 2020 and another in spring of 2021, to better understand what was happening in the field with health centers throughout the pandemic, and several themes emerged. Under COVID, many health centers began experiencing greater coordination and communication with social service partners in the community, but the capacity for social services within the community was mixed. Some expanded for immediate needs, especially with food, but there were also reports of insufficient supply, specifically with housing and transportation. I would also like to note that internet was commonly reported as a limited material for patients, and this was seen in all areas, not just in rural communities. Next slide. Furthermore, we noted that nearly 30% of our participants reported using prepare tool to inform racial and structural inequalities. Here, we have 3 quotes that we pulled from our survey, sharing how health centers are using prepare to address racial and structural inequalities. Next slide, you can learn more about the survey findings through through this brief located on our website. This brief captures how health centers, social service agencies, and others are aligning and supporting ongoing social determinants of health efforts, informing methods and policies to address health equity and planning for future in the wake of COVID-19 pandemic. Next slide. Another resource that folks might be of interest is the person-centered language resource guide that was developed by the NAC prepare team in collaboration with APCHO. Being intentional and thoughtful in our word choice is especially important and timely as we collectively look to advance health equity and language plays a critical role in doing so. This guide is to assist in using inclusive and person-centric language. Next slide. And lastly, NAC has created an SDOH interactive dashboard. This interactive page demonstrates how health centers have and continue to pave the way on health equity and SDOH needs. The link listed on the slide uh here and it can also be shared in the chat I believe. So please take a moment to check it out because it is a very uh really cool interactive page that we created. So that wraps up my presentation. Thank you for your time. And if you have any questions, feel free to email the prepare team at prepare at And I believe we'll also put that in the chat. And Eureka, I'll turn it back to you. Thank you. Great. Thank Great. you so Thank much, you, Alani.
1: Alani. I am now honored to introduce today's first guest speaker. Dr. Cameron Webb, who is the senior policy advisor for equity with the White House COVID-19 response team. A native Virginian with both medical and legal degrees, Dr. Webb is the founding director of the University of Virginia's Health Equity Law and Policy Research Laboratory. And Dr. Webb is a core faculty member at the university's Equity Center, an initiative for the redress of inequity through community engaged scholarship. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Webb. Let me turn things over to you.
3: Well, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be with you all uh, this afternoon, in part because I started my clinical career at a community health center in Long Island City in New York while I was doing my training at Cornell and just recognizing how critical your role is, how important it is, not just in the practice of medicine, but also in community uh, to really have these spaces where anyone can come to get the care that they need. It's uh, it's really critical. There's also a great day here, Milani's presentation just a second ago about PREPARE because I've done research for years on these social determinants of health screening tools and always loved PREPARE. I used it a lot in our clinic at the University of Virginia as well. It's great to hear, uh, you know, the ongoing work there. You know, I think that when we're talking about COVID-19 and specifically equity in COVID-19, it really is one of those rare moments where we're able to highlight in real time the impact of the social determinants of health on health outcomes. I think what we've seen since the very first case of COVID back in January of 2020 uh, here in the United States all the way through today is that we've seen disproportionality in who's had access to testing in the cases that we've seen, the ongoing hospitalizations, the rates of long COVID symptoms, the rates of vaccinations. There are so many different layers where we see the differences in COVID. And those differences aren't born in hospitals or clinics. They don't happen because of the healthcare system specifically. They are born from community, from the spaces where health truly happens places where we're born, grow, live, learn, eat, play, and pray. And so, in so many ways, we recognize that COVID-19 has created a really rare moment for us to to look in real time and say, what can we do to bridge some of these gaps? It's been interesting as we've led the work from the administration. You know, President Biden, since day one, has said he wanted equity to be at the center of the efforts around COVID-19 and response. And in equity, in that conversation, what we're really talking about is how do we navigate and address the ongoing social determinants of health? And that's the reason why we built strategies and programs around paid time off from work or around childcare access, around transportation, working with transit authorities and ride share entities to get people to and from vaccination sites. Why we worked with trusted locations. Why we invested so heavily in connecting with you all with community health centers, because at its core, these are some of the spaces that people know and trust and that's critical to the vaccination effort. And it's the reason why just today Kaiser family foundation came out with their most recent vaccine monitor, which showed that a lot of those gaps in vaccination rates have really finally started to close. You know, if you look nationally now, based on on the vaccine monitor that was released this morning, we're seeing that about 73% of latino individuals and uh, latino adults are vaccinated about 71 percent of white adults about 70 percent of black adults and that's good news that we've seen those gaps you know narrow so much but we still have work left to do we still have you know upwards of three out of ten individuals in given communities who still need to get vaccinated so we're going to continue pushing and i always uh, it's important to highlight that this isn't a survey in isolation showing these gaps have narrowed there was a survey from from Pew just three weeks ago that showed similar rates, the survey from the CDC, with 19,000 people involved last week that showed similar results. So we know that we're making progress and we're doing so by taking a social determinants of health approach to addressing this pandemic. You know, I, I want to close just by saying that we're so excited to continue to partner and work with you because just as much as we're saying we've made a lot of progress, it's really clear jobs Not done, and it's really clear that your role is going to be more important than ever, not just in the ongoing effort to get more adults vaccinated, but in the effort to get boosters to some of the most needed individuals who who really need to make sure that they're staying protected from COVID-19 in the effort to come pretty soon with kids 5 to 11, getting vaccinated in so much of the work ahead, heading into flu season and making sure we have the testing capacity available knowing that a lot of folks in communities are gonna to go to you looking for masks and other ways to help mitigate the potential risks of COVID as we head into upper respiratory season, uh, upper respiratory infection season. So with all of that, just wanna say thank you for all the work that you do, for all of your energy, all of your conviction, all of your passion, and all of your connection in community. It really does make the difference. We see it, uh, we talk about it all the time, how you all are truly an engine in these efforts in community. We're grateful for you and excited to continue partnering with you.
1: Thank you so much for your remarks, Dr. Webb. On behalf of everyone in the health center movement, we appreciate all of the work being done by your office over the past several months. At this time, I I am very excited to now introduce our incredible panel of guests for today's Fireside Chat. The moderator for today is my NAC colleague, Jeremy Crandall, Director of Federal and State Policy. The first panelist is Dr. Andrea Caracostis, CEO of Hope Clinic in Texas. The second panelist is Mr. Rashad Collins, COO of Charter Oak Health Center in Connecticut. And last but certainly not least is Dr. Anthony Stately, CEO of the Native American Community Clinic in Minnesota. Thank you all so much for being here today. Jeremy, I'm handing things over to you now.
4: Oops. There we go. Hold on, one second. There we go. Thank you, Eureka. Really appreciate that. It is a pleasure to be here with you all to discuss a topic that's so important to the patients that health centers serve in today's healthcare climate. So let's dive right into the questions with our panelists. So, um, each of number one, each of your organizations serves such diverse and resilient populations. Beginning with you, Dr. Kara Costas. Um, can you please take a moment to describe the patients that are seen at the hope clinic in Texas and the social drivers of health health that most impact those individuals.
5: Thank you for the question and thank you so much for having us here. 1st of all, uh, you need to know that Houston is a very, very diverse city and we don't really have a majority of um, ethnic and ethnicity. Uh, Hope Clinic, in particular, is located in an area of Houston that's very culturally diverse—a large Asian community, Asian American community—and so our population is incredibly uh, reflects that diversity. We have a um, about 40% of our patients are Asian, and another uh, 35% are Hispanic, and the rest we have Arabic uh, patients, Middle Eastern patients. We have patients from Africa, North Africa, from Morocco and Egypt, and also from South Africa, from um, Somalia and Sudan. And really, Houston has been for the longest time a really uh, welcoming city for refugees and uh, new immigrants. And so um, that that makes up of our cultural diversity. Currently, we are expecting about 1500 or more Afghan refugees. We've already served around 60 families and every single ethnicity has its very unique uh, so, uh, social determinants and health disparities that you really need to be acutely aware when you are working with this population and so over the years Hope Clinic has developed um, skills in treating and managing and addressing hepatitis B in the Asian American community where we have a 12 percent incidence rate in our community and the uh, uh, um, as well as right now with the refu- uh, with the new and refugees coming from Afghanistan an incredibly almost 30% incidence rate in type tuberculosis and tuberculosis care. So, um, we have become fluent in, in diversity and understanding, uh, different cultures. Thank you.
4: Great. Thank you. Doctor <clears throat> next want to go to uh, Rashad Collins with the charter Oak health center. Uh, Mr. Collins, would you like to weigh in on that question about the patients that you all see and the social drivers of health?
6: Yes, thank you, Jeremy. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for, thank you to NAC for uh, having me as well as Charter Oak Health Center represented today. Uh, Charter Oak, we serve, uh, we're located in the south end of Hartford. Uh, about 69% of our uh, patient population identifies as Hispanic or Latino. Um, we, in 2020, we saw over 19,700 uh, patients. Um, given the, the area of the city that we're located in, uh, we see a diverse mix of, uh, black, Latino, um, and black, African American, Latino, uh, and, um. Uh, other, um, ethnicities as well, um, you know, given, um, some of the challenges that our patients face. Uh, language barriers, transportation issues, uh, environmental issues, of course, uh, also, um. Restrictions when it comes to um, access to affordable housing, as well as, of course, uh, quality health care services, which charter Oak continues to provide in that regard. Uh, certainly, during the pandemic, uh, we saw this exacerbated by um, a lot of the barriers systemic barriers as such that um, have been um, in place for a, a very long period of time that really impact uh, the ability for. Um, our patient population, but as well as our community, uh, to access, uh, what they need. Uh, and certainly we spent a lot of our time and energy and continue to, as the pandemic continues in, uh, addressing some of these areas and, uh, ensuring that. Uh, everyone in our community has, uh, access to quality health services, but also, uh, we continue to be a connector for other services that are uh, also in the community. Um, lastly, I'll close by uh, just saying that. Um, given the amount of services that we provide in the, the unique, um. Um, areas that we provide those services in very unique, non traditional ways, which I'll talk about a little bit later. Um, it really gave us an opportunity to bring services more closely directed where people are, uh, which presented less challenges for them to receive
4: the services they need. Thank you. Great. Thanks, Mr. Collins. And then finally, Dr. Stately, and I will say I have no favorites among the panelists, but I have personally visited his health center a number of times in a previous position and uh, you all do amazing work there. But again, I'm not picking favorites, but Dr. Stately, um, would you like to weigh in on this 1st question? You're on mute.
7: There you go. Um, Thank you, Jeremy, for those uh, words. I appreciate it. Um, I appreciate the uh, shout out. Um, The Native American Community Clinic has been around for about 20 years, close to 20 years. We're on the, we are situated on the American Indian Cultural Corridor in South Minneapolis. South Minneapolis is home to um, uh, the largest and most densest population of urban Indian, uh, urban residing American Indians in the United States. Um, And within that sort of like small area, we, NAC is one of, two organizations that sort of dedicate their work to providing medical and health care services to the Native American community. Um, we, um, we serve, um, our clinic is about probably 80 to 85 percent Native American. Um, we have an integrated um, care model, so we have uh, full complement, uh, full service, uh, medical services, primary care, all the way up to ambulatory care. We have um, a dental operation, and we also have a very robust behavioral health um, cl- uh, program, which includes the um, outpatient mental health clinic and a substance abuse treatment clinic, um, which uh, includes an intensive outpatient um, treatment program and also a, a medication assisted treatment suboxone dosing clinic. Um, <clears throat> the majority of our patients are Native American. Um, And about maybe 15% of our patient population is a mix of, um, African American, um, Latino and white, uh, folks and then, uh, a a handful of East African or Somalian folks who sort of kind of come to our community because where we're at, Um, a large portion of our population that we serve is homeless. In Minneapolis specifically, um, we have um, and in the state of Minnesota, Native Americans are um, five to 12 times more likely to be homeless um, and to be homeless intergenerationally for seven, two and three generations. And so <clears throat> that's a large part of our, our population. We also have um, the highest rates of opioid overdose and death um, in, in the state of Minnesota. And so that's what we spend a lot of our time and our efforts on, which means we have to um, put a lot of our resources in our organization to doing um, street outreach and um, uh, patient navigation and transportation services and all these other kinds of things. And within the, um, uh, the scope of the pandemic over the last 18 months, that work has gotten much more harder. The, the amount of work we've had to put into accessing patients and providing care to them and making sure that they have um, access to the vaccine, access to testing, as well as infectious disease um, screening and the, and, and the like has been phenomenal. Like, we, that's where most of our resources go. So.
4: Thank you so much, Doctor. Um, and we're going to stay with you uh, with this next question. So, um, how is your organization, um, the other NAC, um, uh, prioritize screening patients for social risk factors with all the other pressing matters that you all face, you and clinicians and other uh, practitioners face? And can you provide an example of a key collaboration you've
7: developed or strengthened through responding to these risks? Sure. So we um, we have in the clinic we have pay, what we uh, a role called the patient um, um, advocates. They essentially function as um, patient navigators. Um, help people move across the different um, clinics um, and get, get um, access and referrals to um, whatever services they need. Those those advocates are um, at intake, are their first follow up. They're doing the prepare tool. Um, Folks in the behavior health clinic, we have behavior health care coordinator who does all, who um, will do the prepare tool as part of the intake if a person comes in for a behavioral health appointment. Um and one of the things I think that we have um uh, an example of a of a collaboration is that as part of the actual our participation um in a 10 FQHC federally qualified healthcare center um uh Urban Health Network. It's called the Fund uh, Fund Group. Um, we have um, been able to get some CHW time, some community health worker time, from that um, from a grant that um, the Fund Network got, um, for us to be able to have somebody come in and provide some community health worker um, uh, services to our to our uh, f- uh, folks. That community health worker oftentimes will join our um, community outreach team and go to encampments and go to um, other um, organizations, sister organizations, to provide access um, and increase access to uh, patients, um, linking them back to NAC. So it's been a really good partnership. Um, and something we want to build on, we're actually trying to right now write a grant to to improve more, um, increase more CHW time in the clinic, so that w- that's something that we can provide um, more often to our community. Great,
4: thank you, Dr. Stately, uh, Mr. Collins. We're going to go to you with our next question. Um, how has your organization Charter Oak been involved in discussions around state payment models incorporating social determinants of health? In the value-based care or other state policy actions in the SDOH space.
6: Thank you. So, uh, so charter we we uh, started participating in Connecticut's value-based care initiative, uh, and it's called the Patient center Medical Home Plus program. Uh, we began in uh, participating in 2016, uh, and PCMH Plus is a uh, care delivery um, form initiative that. Uh, Primary care practices that have achieved primary uh, patient-centered medical home status uh, to implement uh, additional tools specifically focused around care coordination. Um, the PCMH Plus program uh, provides better service and care experiences for um, individuals. Uh, our assigned patients, uh, which are, which is over 8,400 Medicaid members, um, have assigned have been assigned to Charter Oak. Uh, And we utilize a um, a cadre of community health workers that have um, assigned uh, patients uh, eligible patients for this program uh, that they work with on a consistent basis uh, focused on reducing emergency uh, emergency room visits uh, also by providing um, health education. And um, constant in communication and follow up on a a weekly uh, monthly basis with patients, and also um, engaging by um, expanding our um, internal urgent care service that we provide, which is open until midnight on Fridays and Saturdays and also open 7 days a week. Um, Because we have these community health workers that are dedicated to this effort. It allows for us to have. A true uh, team based model where um, our CHWs are able to connect with patients outside of the exam room space, um, connect them to care uh, for services on a multitude of different areas, uh, including uh, to address food insecurity, food insecurity, energy assistance, transportation, uh, health education, on a, on a wide variety of different topics. Uh, we also have a nutritionist here, uh, which allows us to um, have our uh, patients also participate in cooking classes and um, healthy food demonstrations and such and so forth. So, this allows us to um, have a better care of connection for how we can continue to um, ensure that we are um, improving the overall health of our patients. Thank you.
4: Great. Thank you, Mr. Collins. Um, Dr. Caracasas, we're going to go back to you. Um, so, there is considerable uh, policy action in play right now on the Hill, um, as I'm sure everybody on this uh, webinar knows, Medicaid expansion, protections for the Affordable Care Act, childcare, uh, climate change, telehealth, and that is not the, the all-encompassing summary um, that really does it justice. If you had to pick one specific policy action, action Congress could take that would help health centers make immediate progress on social determinants of health, and it certainly does not need to come from the roster that I just listed. But if you could specific pick one specific policy action, um, what would it be?
5: Certainly, you know, for health centers like us, Medicaid expansion, especially in Texas, is a big, big item. Um, there's so many people that just really fall into this donut hole of non-eligible, and uh, it really hurts the families when they're trying to access health care, and also it hurts the it hurts us when we're trying to move them through the continuum of addressing the social um, determinants of health.
4: Great, thank you. Um, so we only have 1 more question. I, I do, um, you know, if either of our panelists, um. You know want to weigh in on that question or this last 1 as I, um, as I ask it, I encourage you to do so. So I'll, I'll ask the final or go ahead. Dr. Staley. Did you want to.
7: I was going to say that I certainly agree that Medicaid expansion is really an important thing for lots of, um, uh, I mean, I, I think it is important for the entire country, quite frankly. Um, We've seen um, as a result of the ACA and the Medicaid expansion, we have been able to see significant improvements in access to healthcare services because um, people who originally are for, Historically, could not have um, healthcare coverage. They were able to have healthcare coverage and then we saw a significant uptick in the utilization of services. That's certainly true of Minnesota before um, Medicaid expansion, um, about 60 to 65% of Native Americans in the state of Minnesota went without um, healthcare coverage on on, on an annual basis. Um, since Medicaid expansion, um, that um, that number has significantly um, that gap has significantly closed. We're up to about eighty to eighty-five percent um, of uh, coverage for Native Native Americans in the state of Minnesota, which is an amazing thing. Um, of course, we have lots of work to continue to do for that fifteen percent or so that um, still are struggling um, uh, to continue to get coverage. So that's an important thing to do. But I think in the within the context of the pandemic over the last 18 18 months, we have seen a significant ability to sort of reach more patients and provide better care and, uh, and continue to provide care and access to care, um, especially in substance abuse and behavioral health um, with respect to telehealth. Um, and having that and and, and you know we're in the middle of an urban area and you would think that like i think the assumption that a lot of people have is that you know in the middle of an urban area you'd be able to have access to internet you'd be able access to all kinds of things because of uh of the number of services that are around but our community had really struggled with access um early on NAC was able to pivot very quickly and move almost all of our services within a week or two to telehealth and that really was the uh, was and continues to be one of the most critical um, uh, uh, services that we need to continue well into the future um, for at least the next um, uh, um, several months. We sort of navigate our way through the remaining um, issues that are related to the pandemic, but this has been a solution for improving access. Um, um, that will continue on for for well, after the pandemic is over. Um, and, uh, and that's an important thing to continue to do is, to, you know, the, the number 1 issue that we have, um, in our community is access to care. Being able to provide that in a way that's useful and, um, seamless and easy to get to, for patients is a really critical thing for us to continue to improve healthcare.
4: Thank you, Dr. Um, telehealth is definitely a common theme that we hear across the issue spectrum. Um, so we have 1 more uh, uh, pre question, if you will. Um, and then there's 1 that came up in the chat. And so what I wanted to do for our panelists is I'm gonna actually read both um, and, and you know, you can choose your own adventure answer both if you'd like, because um, I, I know we've got about ten minutes, 5 to 10 minutes or so left um, for for questions. So, um, I'll read the 1 that came in and then I'm gonna read the 2nd 1. so the question that came in. Um, is what resources do you all have for a more adolescent youth based. Prepare Uh, specifically, how do we prepare screen school age children. Through school based clinics, including telehealth. So that was the question that came in Um, and I can read it again. You don't need to memorize these, but then the the general question for all of our panelists um, is and and Mr. Collins. It's okay to start with you in listening to Dr. Webb's comments around health centers, impact on health equity and COVID response. What innovations, innovative ways, do you envision your organization um, continuing or changing when working to address health dis- and eliminating, ideally, health disparities and providing access to critical social services?
6: Yeah. So one of the commitments that Charter Oak Health Center made, you know, at the the very onset of the pandemic, was ensuring that we didn't limit our services to the four walls of our service locations. So, it was very important for us to uh, get out into the community and ensure that we are providing our services. So 2 specific, well, 3 specific things that uh, we did. 1 was during the pandemic. We expanded our urgent care hours. Uh, So, while uh, many entities, as we know, and organizations were um, contracting hours, and for multiple different reasons, um, you know, we felt that it was important to provide even more access. uh, So, we. Actually expanded our urgent care hours to midnight uh, on the weekends. In addition to that, uh, we knew that. uh, Even with being located in uh, areas of high need, it was also going to be critical for us to get um, out into the community to provide the services directly. So, we implemented uh, mobile testing and vaccine uh, in, in a variety of different ways from drive up to also walk up. Uh, We conducted over 28,000 tests and um, over 12,000 vaccines to date uh, in a mobile capacity. Uh, We've also um, continued those efforts by partnering with um, many different uh, community uh, organizations, uh, faith based organizations. uh, Great collaborations with the public health departments, Um, Hartford public schools has been a great um, partner of ours as well. And it's really given us the opportunity to provide services um, in more flexible ways than we had done even prior to the pandemic. Uh, one of the, the important issues that we've identified is that um, while uh, we continue and always have and always will provide access, um, it's also important to be more in tune to what is the best uh, delivery model for the populations that we're focused on. Uh, so, as we continue to provide those services throughout the pandemic and beyond, uh, it's going to be important for us to always continue to ensure that. um, we don't just stand up a come to us model, but that we're keenly and intentionally focused on, uh, going to our population and ensuring that we're providing those services
4: in the most, um, efficient way possible. Thank you. Great. Great. Thanks. Mr. Collins doctor. Can we go to you next?
5: Yeah, I, you know, I think that uh, some of the lessons, uh, in terms of utilizing prepare, and it's really, um, we can certainly, you know, refer patients back and forth to social agencies. But we also, um, for us, the great uh, turnaround was focusing our services in upstream into upstream care. So the clinic has really moved up into focusing on what are the, um. The things that we can do to address, uh, the needs of our population farther upstream. For example, we have hired a chef and so in, uh, in our culinary program, uh, we have actually, um, instead of telling people, you know, how many calories they need to consume, we enroll them in, in educational, um, uh, uh cooking classes. The, the chef does cooking classes with the schools where we give the parents and the, the child a box of fresh produce and then we do online classes on the cooking. And so the parents and the children can cook together. And because food is not just what you put in your mouth and the number of calories you, you consume is actually a whole family event. And we, we during this COVID pandemic, we have realized there's a lot of social isolation. And so there's ways of engaging parents and children and communities to sharing recipes. Um, we have furthered, um, you know, in the initial intent of this culinary program was to have culinary school and to teach new chefs and to really um, bring into the kitchen this and the sense of the leadership in healthcare, because what we put in our mouth is really, really important. And let's face it. We all eat out more than our share <laughs> and uh, really t- transforming um, small businesses into champions of health care has been 1 of the things that we've done during COVID we partnered with small uh, restaurant owners and um, formed a leadership uh, academy with them. We teach them not only how to cook, how to transform their current menus into healthier options, um, how to replace sugars, how to replace starches, and then um, we bring marketing campaign, um, the e-commerce experts, and other leaderships to really help them succeed. Because we need people who are economically healthy in our community to be also emotionally, physically, and emotionally healthy too, for their families. Um, and so that that we've really gone out of our shell to work actively with um, our partners outside our clinic walls with different different projects also in our maternity. Project uh, working with partners in the community to help a woman understand uh, what is going on with their bodies before they're pregnant while they're pregnant and after they're pregnant and uh, I'll I'll shut up with that.
4: (laughs) No, that was great. Thank you. Um, and Dr Stately um, last, but not least.
7: Yeah, I was thinking about a couple of really clear, um, examples we have of what we. Uh, of how we've worked in this area to sort of like address um, issues, like Dr. Costas has said upstream. Um- Right before the pandemic happened, NAC had started um, and launched a cultural healing program. We hired one elder in residence who would sort of provide cultural and spiritual care services to our patients. We've been hearing from the community for a while that they had wanted access to traditional healing and cultural healing services to complement their doctor visits and their behavioral health visits and the like. Um, and we, we started that process right at the end of uh, about mid year in 2018 and who knew that, um, a year later, year and a half later, when the pandemic happened that 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 having that opportunity to be able to have cultural and spiritual care within the clinic, um, would be really a critical um, thing to have in place by the time the pandemic started. And what we saw over the course of the last 18 months is a significant, um, um, you know, um requests for those services we've hired more um, elders and residents and providing more spiritual care we got a couple of grants that allowed us to do things like purchase um uh, traditional medicines um, and hire consultants who would um, do um, webinars and workshops on making traditional teas traditional medicines elixirs that were helpful for actually for for the um or the uh, respiratory issues that um, COVID were people were experiencing, and what we did was um, we mailed those out to patients, or we had drive-by's, um, dr- drive-up distributions, so that they could kind of get their kits and they could make things. We expanded that to other things, like we were um, we ex- and we included things like um, traditional moccasin making. Um, uh, uh, um uh, ribbon skirts and um uh, ribbon shirts all these other things that would allow them to participate in ceremony and also dancing and powwows and things like that once we had the opportunity to get back in and engage in social activities another thing that was really critical for us to do is um you know people were not coming in for testing and one of the things that we had to do is we had to pivot and partner with large health systems and small health systems and other community partners to sort of bring testing to Those locations where people lived and so we, um, we worked with, like, um, St. Paul Indians into action. We also worked with, um, Interfaith Council, worked with a number of other organizations to bring testing testing centers to people in the neighborhoods where they live so that they could access testing and easily easily and we did um similarly when the vaccines were available we we brought vaccines to encampments and we also brought vaccines to some community organizations near where the people live throughout minneapolis and st paul thank
4: you doctor um this has been an excellent panel um thank you so much to our panelists um this work is both extremely hard and extremely important and doing it in the middle of a global once in a century pandemic certainly doesn't make the job any easier for you and your amazing teams. Um, so personally, just thank you for all the amazing work you're doing, um, and it, it was an honor to to be on this panel with you all, um, or or to moderate. You all did the did the talking. Um, Eureka, let me turn it back to you to bring us home and close things out.
1: Great, right, thank you so much, Jeremy, and uh, we are just sincerely grateful to Dr. Webb, Dr. Karakostis. Mr. Collins and Dr. Stately for taking time out of their busy schedules to have this timely and thoughtful discussion. Um, health centers have always understood the need to address the social determinants of health way before they were even labeled as such. And we are well positioned to continue leading the, this critical component of healthcare delivery. We hope today's fireside, a fireside chat sparks some new ideas for you and your health centers to address the social determinants of health. As you know, NAC is celebrating It's 50th anniversary this year and these monthly fireside chats offer an opportunity to highlight the impact community health centers are making every day across America, especially during the COVID-19 pandemic. NAC is honored to represent the voices of nearly 30 million patients, 14,000 nonprofit community health center sites, over 250,000 staff and 12,000 community and consumer board members. You can visit our website look for the scrolling homepage and click on the 50th anniversary section to hear all of the past webinars. So thank you for attending today's session and we invite you to join us next month on Tuesday, October 26th at 2 p.m. Eastern. We will be honoring America's veterans and welcoming guest speaker, Dr. Cameron Matthews, Chief Medical Officer of our Veterans Health Administration. Enjoy the rest of your day and please take care of yourself and each other.